Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 19. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent BJJ approach. Hope you enjoyed the guard series that we just wrapped up last week. This week, we're going to be talking about something that's timely for Matt, injuries and setbacks. Yep, I'm no uh, no stranger to injuries and setbacks and currently going through a a knee issue right now that's been plaguing me for the last year, so be good to discuss it. So what happened? Uh, I, I think honestly, well... The uh, long and short of it is I have a meniscus issue. So for those of you that don't know uh, or aren't familiar with knee injuries, you know, you could, um, some of the more severe knee injuries are going to be uh, rupturing your ligaments like ACL, um, MCL, different ligaments inside your knee, which are much more severe than uh, a torn meniscus, which is what I have. Meniscus is just uh, the cartilage in between your bones and your knee. And um, from what I'm told by most people who have had the procedure done, it's a pretty low-risk, non-intrusive, quick recovery uh, injury to the knee. So basically, there's a a rip or a a fold in the meniscus, and then they go in and they clean it out. It's called a meniscusoptomy, I believe it's called could be wrong uh and yeah uh, basically just trim it up and then i'm told that in two weeks i should be able to start my drilling and whatnot and then four to six weeks i should pretty much have a complete recovery um last year around june i was doing the cbjjf provincials and i won gold in the 180 pound absolute uh or 180 pound all levels division and then i did gi after and um, I got injured in that match and basically had to take about a month off. It was a really bad injury where my knee was locking up and uh, I couldn't even open it for the x-ray. It was pretty much locked at a 90 degree angle for about a week until it started loosening up and, and uh, getting better. Uh, and then I, t- I toyed with the idea of not getting a procedure done just because everyone I was talking to was telling me, oh, well, if you get a meniscus scope, then, you know, it's like ripping pages out of a book. And you kind of lose, you know, over time you could lose longevity with your knee. Um, so it, I was kind of torn for a while, but it did keep re-injuring it or, you know, re-aggravating in practice. It would be totally fine. And then I would uh, maybe overwork it or something and I would feel it tweak again and it would be locked out. And, you know, it was just a really aggravating thing. I'm sure this is really common for most athletes and maybe even some people listening right now that, are, you know, have some knee issues. Uh, it was a very common injury amongst athletes. So finally went through with it, got an MRI and uh just three days ago got the got the meniscus scoped out so yeah i'm hoping that uh it'll be it'll be a quicker recovery 
And I really, it's amazing how well you're moving around considering that you just had this done. Your foot is pretty swollen at the moment, but other than that, you're walking around pretty normal. I'm sure you're not doing full sparring, but you seem <laughs> to be in pretty good condition. Yeah, today was actually the first day where uh, even without talking to my surgeon, uh, I, I figured I, I should probably start moving it around because um, I didn't want to just have no activity whatsoever. I can't, I can't get dirty or, or wet <laughs> uh, or soak it or anything in, until I see him two weeks after the surgery. But I figure I could let it breathe a little bit and move around and start strengthening it. And I was able to do one-legged squats on it today with uh, pretty minimal pain. So, you know, it's a, I think it's going to be a quick turnaround. And hopefully it'll, it'll sort of help me uh, get back in there to a, the competitive level that I want. Although I do notice that now uh, my other knee is, uh, has gone through a recent pop. And, uh, and, and I feel like... You know, as as we get older, you know, ever since I reached 30, I basically started getting knee issues. And, um, you know, in, in jiu-jitsu, we tend to just work around these things. Uh, but this time, I think the, the main focus that I'm going to do moving forward is going to be incorporating a strength and uh, uh, prehab slash physio portion to my training just ongoing. So, to make sure that my knees and my hips and, and everything is... Uh, is sort of aligned and and the strength is training is there that's what i need to do to uh probably maintain a an active competitor you know or an active jujitsu career moving forward i've tweaked my knee several times i've never had a serious knee injury but for me knee injuries are a scary thing uh -huh. you hear so many horror stories of what can happen if you get a knee injury how long it can take to rehab you may never get back to where you were so for me whenever i've had an issue with my knee i've immediately taken corrective action usually going to physio getting a routine there and laying off the knee and taking some time off the mat if I need to, or depending on the severity, if it's not too bad, at least trying to minimize the intensity with which I'm, I'm rolling or maybe eliminating rolling and just focusing on techniques. I think the mistake a lot of people make is their knee is bugging them and they try to just power through it and then it just gets worse. And, oh, for sure. Yeah. And knees along with your neck, your back, your shoulders, these are the kind of injuries you don't want to just try to power through. Yeah. I, you know, like a week before my surgery, I was like, man, my knee's feeling really good right now. Like I'm training pretty much a hundred percent scrambling and you know i'm never i'm never scrambling to the degree i used to just because i'm afraid about folding my knee or whatever and, and maybe re-aggravating again so it has affected my mindset when i train and possibly even when i compete but i know that it was never you know there's always the possibility that i was going to re-aggravate it so uh, I'm hoping that the scope has sort of trimmed up whatever needs to be trimmed and it's not going to get not going to get re-aggravated again. Uh, the people that I've spoke to that have had the procedure done, they say it's the best. They say that, you know, with the, the way that they do it nowadays, it's very, uh, very non-invasive and, and uh, your chances of recovery are extremely good. I know people that have had like three scopes on one knee, two scopes on the other. I, I know uh, recently, I think it was Yoel Romero who was talking on the Joe Rogan podcast about how he, he had his uh, meniscus completely removed, which to me sounds insane. Um, it sounds like a lot of bone grinding on bone. Well, to me, Yoel Romero sounds insane. <laughs> I guess when you're juiced to the gills, it's a, uh, <laughs> you know, you probably tend to survive a lot of injuries that other people can, but uh, um, 
you know, it, it's it's just kind of how it is, especially with a sport like jujitsu, where where we're basically doing leg spaghetti, and it's a you know using levers and manipulating legs in weird fashions. Um, I, th- I think the actual originally injury happened probably when I was a purple belt. I can remember I was training at a gym, um, and uh, I was playing spider guard, and one of I guess the guy that I was sparring against kind of I don't know if he lost his footing, but he fell forward, and my leg folded, and it popped. And ever since then, I've I've sort of noticed that there's a somewhat of an issue with that knee right so um you know these things they can go on to to last for a long time but i'm i'm hoping that with the proper uh rest and the proper uh steps moving forward i can sort of get back to that place where i'm feeling like i'm 20 again (laughs) the thing about injuries is that they affect you physically and mentally physically because in addition to the reduced function when you have an injury your body tries to compensate you'll wind up relying more on other muscles that you wouldn't normally and you start favoring the weakened joint and that continues even after you've you know after your surgery so a big part of physio is retraining your body to use that weakened joint but there's also the mental factor too once you've injured a part of your body you're a little bit gun shy to use that again. I've never been an explosive or athletic jujitsu practitioner, but I'm a lot more cautious now than I used to be when I was younger. You know, I never scramble now. I never do anything like that because I've just had too many learning experiences where trying to be fast and explosive can often lead to bad results. So, there's a mental factor to that as well, where if you've had bad injury experiences, it can eventually create mental baggage. And then in addition to the physical rehab, there's a degree of mental rehab too. I remember a good example of this was GSP. When he blew out his knee in the UFC, he was gone for a long time and there was a lot of talk about how, you know, oh, is he, is he going to be the yeah. same guy? Does that he still he, have it? Does he still have it? And even if he's able to physically do what he used to do mentally, will he still be willing? Willing to do that power double. That was a big conversation back then. And that's really a thing. When you have an injury that takes you out of the game for a while, it creates a sense of fear in you that makes it harder to go back to the kind of uh, throwing caution to the wind that you used to do before. Yeah. I I mean, you're exactly right. I, I feel like when I'm in training, I try to I'm actually, for the most part, training light uh, unless I'm preparing for a tournament or I'm sparring with a partner where I want to give them my best. Um, Generally, I try and actually limit the scrambling and limit the athleticism required and I know that competing at a high level you you do have to use scrambles and and you do have to use athleticism and speed. So it's definitely, you know, I felt it in the last competition where you know, if I have to wrestle with this guy, do I really, does my knee have it in me to do that? I I know that one of my goals moving forward after my last competition was I wanted to uh, train with the SFU wrestling team more and, and build more of my wrestling, but my knee wasn't at a point where I felt like it could actually train at that level and uh, stay uninjured. So, you know, it's always a mental game for you and, and it's, it's something that's, uh, it's challenging, you know, and, and it really does, uh, shape the way that you, you play the game differently from then on. I mean, anyone who's had an injury, especially a knee injury, uh, or any injury for that matter in jujitsu, but still wants to train, uh, 
finds ways to play positions differently, chooses different guards um, because it favors, you know, safety on the injury. And, and uh, in ways it's good in ways you can learn a lot about injury, uh, a lot about positions that you maybe didn't consider before, or you learn different guards that you maybe didn't even play before. But um, like, for example, for me, I played a lot of butterfly guard and, you know, a lot of different uh, elevation type hooks with my right leg and, and whatnot. But now I, I, I'm really, playing a lot of half guard because it protects that knee and you know so a lot of lucas leach style guard a lot of uh jake mckenzie style half guards and deep half guards um so so at the end if you can view it as a positive experience you can still gain from it i know it's really hard to you know if you're going through an injury right now it's it's tough because you want to just get back out there so bad but you do have to remain patient and you just have to look for ways to adapt and uh constantly still grow while part of you is kind of left behind healing. I think we talked earlier about training handicaps. The idea being that if there's an area of your game you want to work on, you can intentionally remove other areas of your game to focus on working that area. You know, so for example, if your back mount is really, really bad, then you can set up training scenarios where you get to focus on your back mount. And one of the ways that you can turn injury into a positive experience is by strategically using these kinds of training handicaps so that, okay, maybe if there's a part of your body that doesn't work the way it's supposed to temporarily, you can readjust and you can develop areas of your game that might be neglected um, that don't require that part of the body. You know, a good example, like you said, with knee injuries, um, there are things you can do even with knee injuries. You can maybe try different guards that require less strain on the knee. You can try different types of motion. You can try moving maybe more slowly and deliberately. There, there are definitely options. I mean, I, and to a point that you brought up earlier regarding scrambles, I know that your professor, Rob, uh, one of his sayings is that there's no such thing as a scramble, which is something that I, I kind of tend to agree with. Um, my, my definition of a scramble is you are in a position or a scenario where you're not comfortable, you don't know what to do, and so your strategy is basically to use athleticism in lieu of technique. Um, and that's, that's, I mean, that sounds like it's a bad thing, and a lot of the time it honestly is. You want to minimize that, but sometimes scrambling might be the only option you can pull out quickly enough to, to, you know, to achieve your goals. It, for me, especially as a not particularly athletic guy, scrambling is something I always try to avoid. It's kind of the option of last resort. Um, but, I, and I don't have any evidence to really cite this, but my feeling is that most injuries, or at least a lot of injuries, probably occur in the scramble. So a uh, reason why it's in everyone's best interests to train and get acquainted with lots of different positions and get experience is because the more you know about jujitsu and the more you're comfortable with, the less your need to scramble should be. Uh, and in that case, if you know what you're doing, it's less likely you're going to get injured. Uh, you know, for me, a lot of the time when I get injured, it's because I did something stupid. I was in a position that I'm not familiar with or I'm not comfortable with. As a result, I took a stupid risk or I left a limb exposed and then something bad happens. So um, a big part, I think, of, of, you know, dealing with of injury prevention is avoiding, like learning enough to avoid the scramble. To me, at least, that's how I look at things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree that uh, like for me, scrambles really only occur um, when points are kind of on the line uh, and when you're a partner or 
opponent is at such a high level that you mm-hmm. you know you're maybe several sequences down the line and you you have to scramble to try and you know win the win the sequence for points or whatever or maybe you know get that submission or whatever uh so i I don't necessarily agree with Rob that there's no such thing as a scramble, but I know what he's trying to say because he's trying to teach proper lever control mm-hmm. and conceptual uh, basis for his for his approach. Not necessarily that uh, a scramble doesn't exist. You know, anyone who watches a takedown art knows that mm-hmm. scrambles do take place at a high level, and you you kind of need to be able to rally back and forth if you're going to play the game. So, um, you know, it, it's it, it's just uh, one of those things you talk about, like. Uh, it, Injuries, how how you usually get injured. I've always found that whenever I've gotten injured, especially through my earlier days, were uh, mistakes of my own, like uh, things that I did to myself. Yeah, not yeah. necessarily like someone armbarred me and I didn't tap, or or uh, you know someone snapped on a submission on me. But a lot of the time, it's me trying to go for a move that isn't really there. Like I remember one time mm-hmm. I had a I had a guy in turtle. And I was on top and I saw this cool turtle armbar that Henzo Gracie showed on YouTube. So without even trying the move, I would just, uh, I, I, I isolated his arm and then I sort of tried to roll through, but I totally just shoulder spiked myself and pro- pro- probably minorly dislocated my shoulder. And, and uh, I think that that's where most of my injuries have happened is of my own doing. And I find especially when I attempt a move that I've never spent time drilling or rehearsing before is definitely where I, I get injured the most yeah injuries often come from undefined or unknown scenarios where you're not comfortable kind of tying back into the conversation about scrambling a lot of the time at least i find when i get injured it's because i was in a situation that is just not a situation i'm fluent in really when you're training and you're learning new situations in the gym probably in your best interests to avoid trying to scramble just because there's not really a big gain in racking up victories in the gym. But also, if we're working under the theory that that's where you are more likely to be injured, you're better off using that gym time to get comfortable with these scenarios rather than trying to use your athleticism and increase the risk level of injury. Yeah, scrambles kind of insinuate that you're using uh, physical attributes, which is something that Professor Rob always sort of he, he he talks it down on on a, on a general scale, but obviously, if you're a high level competitor, you do need to be able to scramble, and you do need to be able to be physical and athletic, uh, because there's gonna you're gonna come against opponents that have just as good of skill, if not better than you. So um, that's sort of my. In the gym, my, my whole philosophy is, we for the most part, I encourage light rolling. And if you're new, I definitely specifically encourage light rolling because, you know, A, if you turn it on your partner and they get uh, upset that this new person is trying to kick their ass, that you're going to get it just as bad. And B, you're going to be focusing on physical attributes as opposed to, you know, concepts such as levers and, and uh, layers of guard and all the good stuff that uh, Rob's system has. So... <clears throat> I always find that if if you're new to the game and you're sort of wondering how you can avoid injuries or moving forward, what's a safe way to train because we all got to go to work in the morning, all that stuff. Uh, definitely focus on things that you can do slow and perfect because if you know if you can't do as they say, if you can't do things slow, then you're not going to be able to do things fast. And it's important to remember that you've got to have the right mindset for the job at hand. When you're in the gym, your goal is to learn. And when you're trying to learn, you shouldn't be focused on winning. 
winning. And when you're and that, by that, I mean, you should be avoiding situations where you're letting your athleticism dictate what happens. You can greatly reduce the risk of injury if you're more intelligent with the time that you spend in the gym. What you do in competition requires a different mindset. And that's kind of a more all or nothing scenario. But when you're in the gym, you're better off at least I think, focused are on avoiding the scramble, avoiding dangerous situations. And like you said, going s- slower and more deliberate and trying to absorb knowledge rather than trying to win the match. And then with what you drill into yourself, then you can adopt a different mindset in competition. And that's when you can really use that athleticism to your advantage. Yeah. In the, in the gym, pretty much every time I roll, whether it's a guest or one of my students, I basically allow them to set the pace, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's going to tell me, okay, do they, do they want to go hard this round? Do they want to, you know, just play around? And I'll, I'll basically just kill them with kindness. And ideally, I should be able to defeat them without using, you know, uh, speed or strength. I'm just purely focusing on my lever mechanics and, you know, breaking their alignment and whatnot. If I can do that without even uh, you know, exerting tons of effort, then I feel like that's a good sign that uh, my ju- my my technique is good. And mm-hmm. and if your emphasis is always going to be put on technique and uh, you know uh, form that serves function in jujitsu, then I think you're always going to be on the right track for growth. Uh, you can always go to the gym and work on being more explosive, being more athletic, uh, doing more you know, di- different, a- different exercises. I think like when it's time to go to jujitsu class, generally you're going to be focusing on your technique. So yeah, uh, that's sort of, uh, and athleticism is something that decreases over time, whereas technique is something that increases over time. I mean, that said, you know, when you're in your prime years and you're trying to win competitions, you want to use all the advantages you have, but mm-hmm. over the long term, technique is an investment that doesn't depreciate, which is something that's nice about it. Yeah. And, and you know, when I, when I, when I did hurt my knee at that competition, there was for anyone else, there who's kind of going through a rough patch right now like it is uh you're gonna go through a lot of different emotions especially if you're serious about jujitsu and you love competing or maybe you do it for a living um or maybe you're ju- you're just you know you're on a great run you're making all these great strides and you're just having one of those awesome uh few months there and then you get a setback like like hurting your knee or you know like i i, I look at my knee injury and i think i'm pretty i'm actually pretty lucky because i you, there's so many worse injuries i could have hurt my neck i could have hurt my back um, you know, I could have hurt my hip. I could have, uh, I could have, uh, torn a ligament, right? These are all way more, in my opinion, more serious injuries than uh, a torn meniscus. So, uh, I would recommend that if you are going through an injury right now, try to research people that have gone through the same injury. You know, even Instagram is a great place. I, I went on Instagram and I started, I just hashtagged, you know, meniscus recovery and boom, I had a bunch of videos of people that are going through the same thing. They're writing about it. They're showing the exercises they're doing and they're saying, hey, this is a common thing, right? So I find that uh, trying to find a community and reach out to people that have gone through certain injuries can be inspirational for you to, you know, to move forward with recovery and not just get so bogged down because I do know that it, um, uh, the the depress the depression aspect of an injury can really take it out on an athlete because they feel like they're missing training they feel like they're falling behind and um, that's a really important thing to address with your own self and then make a plan moving forward how you're not going to let that happen you know mm-hmm. even even though I'm going to miss time training on the mats I can still improve in other ways you know I can I can do my physio exercises I can uh, I can spend this time to do more swimming and gymnastics type stuff like on the on the ring 
brings. I can, you know, mentally I can study more. I can look at more material that maybe I wouldn't have had a chance to look at before. Maybe I can focus on my business. You know, there's always, mm-hmm. there's always going to be things that you can work on even though you're injured. And that's, that's really important is to be able to adapt, right? Just like we do in jujitsu. We, we don't want to like run right straight through an obstacle. We have to find a way to adapt to the obstacle and still make a positive out of something. So, um, that was one of the things I did was I sort of started re- doing some research and, and trying to read other stories of athletes that are going through the same thing that I'm going through. Yeah. When you have an injury or a setback, it can derail you. It can take you off course, but the way to really lose is to give up. And for a lot of people, when they get hit with an injury or a setback, they kind of pack it up and call it a day. And that's really unfortunate. Uh, an injury or a setback is a, is a good opportunity to become more resilient, to think outside of the box and look for other ways to improve or, or adapt to the situation that, um, it, it can kind of actually be a growth opportunity. I mean, yeah, you might, you know, maybe one door is closed, but that doesn't mean that other doors are closed as well. There are other opportunities for you. And I, you know, I can tell you this, no matter how bad your injury is, if you stop training altogether in most situations that's the worst option now there are there that said there are some injuries that are so dire that you probably do need to reconsider whether you're training but in most cases there is a path forward and the worst thing that you can do is give up that's right and and uh like a prime example in terms of knee injuries is you know what recently has happened to gordon ryan where he completely tore his ACL and uh, I, I don't know the extent of his injury, but I know he completely tore his ACL and had to get it replaced. And that's a big surgery. And, and us- usually it was considered before to be a career ending injury. I think nowadays, you know, so many people are bouncing back from ACL surgeries. Um, I actually have a friend who tore his ACL years ago playing soccer and he never got it fixed. And to this day, he trains hard without an ACL, which is insane to me, but he makes it work. Um but watching a guy like Gordon Ryan, who just had an ACL replacement, or uh, to a lesser extent, two other guys that I'm, I'm pretty uh, familiar with, PJ Barch and uh, Oliver Taza, are have both got recently gone through ACL replacements. They're both right now uh, all they're all rehabbing their knees, and uh, you know you follow them on social media, and it's 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 pretty inspirational, and it's helpful to just see that these other people are going through these tr- these struggles too, and it can really help motivate you to not just give up and say, okay, well, I guess my jujitsu career is over now. It, if, you, if you believe that it's over, it is over, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you believe that you, you're going to continue, then you're going to continue. So it's really just it, it, like we've spoken about in, previously in our mindset episode, it's all about mindset. It's all about how moving forward, what, are, what do you want out of this? Do you want to just fall behind or do you want to continue uh, growing? And in my mm-hmm. case, because I have a school, I, I'm pretty much forced to, to continue growing. But, uh, you know, because I'm serious with jujitsu, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, that's a good callback to when we talked about growth mindsets. And this is a, a perfect example of that. If you get injured and you lose some function in one of your limbs, you know, there's a few ways that you can handle that. One way is you can just accept that as a limitation and think of this as a fixed situation that you can do nothing about. But a far superior mindset is a growth mindset where you look for ways where you can continue to improve and evolve. And you you definitely can. I mean, there are grapplers out there who are, you know, 70 plus years old. And man, if you can still be training at that age, clearly you've been adapting and evolving and changing and growing over the years and working around limitations. There's always ways to grow and evolve regardless of what you've been hit with. So 
It's, I think in a lot of ways, a big part of dealing with the injuries, you know, it's, there's the mental aspect can be more daunting than the physical aspect. Uh, a personal example for me, probably the weirdest and scariest injury that I ever had. Uh, Matt, you might remember this. It's maybe a little bit of a, gra- a graphic discussion, but back when I was, I think a white belt, I was doing stand-up with a guy. And you know that any discussion that starts with white belts doing stand-up is not going <laughs> to go well. So basically two white belts who, you know, are doing jujitsu and definitely don't knew, know judo. Um, he zigged, I zagged, and I got an unclipped fit thumbnail right in the eye. Um, when I went and took a look in the mirror, there was like a visible piece of my eye that was gone <laughs> like oh, it was God. it was the freakiest thing that has ever happened to me in my life when i you know when i looked in the mirror and saw that a piece of my eye was missing i almost passed out like it was just the the freakiest thing um i i couldn't see straight for about a, a week maybe two weeks a- after that um interestingly though turned out to not be a, that big a deal um the, the eye actually heals back really really quickly and you know I'd, i kind of got back to where i was but psychologically that was terrifying for me you know because for, yeah. for a day or two there I didn't know is my vision permanently gone what's going to happen here you know is this just a uh, that that really kind of shook me especially being a white belt because you know you've got so so much longer to go there's so much you don't know and then this happens to you Um, but it I'm I'm glad that of course I stuck through it because so much has changed and I've learned so much since then Um, it could it would have been really bad for sure if I quit my life would have gone in a completely different direction so it's a you know, even in situations like that, that maybe are not, at the end of the day, not as not as scary as a bad knee injury, it's something that you want to keep in mind. You want to try to look towards the positive and look for ways to continue rather than looking for reasons why you have to quit. Yeah, and luck is definitely an aspect that we don't mm-hmm. consider too. I definitely. Think a lot of it, like uh, I, I remember, um, I've seen a guy in practice uh it was a white belt going against a blue belt. The blue belt actually jumped guard on him when this was allowed back when you could jump guard at white belt and uh, his leg completely folded knee completely destroyed, never did jujitsu again. So that's, mm-hmm. I see stuff like that. It's like some of the saddest stuff that could happen all because, you know, you weren't standing in the proper place. And that's why I'm a, I'm a big advocate for getting rid of jumping guard, even though I know it is super effective in jiu-jitsu. Like, I, th- mm-hmm. I think it's one of the smartest ways to attack, actually, is flying yeah. guard jump. But um, but definitely uncontrolled falling body weight is is one of the, the scariest things. So I'm I, a lot of the time I pull guard just because I want to limit the chance that I am going to get an injury relate, you know, related to someone jumping guard on me when I'm not ready for it or whatever. Yeah. You've got to know your body. You've got to know the kind of things that your body can do and probably shouldn't do. And, um, this takes a degree of training to get comfortable with, but there's always going to be certain moves that just don't feel right for your body type. And you're really better off creating a strategy that takes you to places where you're comfortable being, <laughs> you know, yeah. for, for me, there are certain moves that I just try to stay away from. I mean, I'm not really the kind of guy who's going to, you know, shoot a power double or something because I've just had a lot of bad experiences with that. And I know, I know that just is not my body type. Um, but at, at the same time, I know there's people who have tremendous success with that. So you kind of have to go with what feels right to your, to your own body. Yeah. Well, the, here's, here's a funny story back, back when I was, I think it was a blue belt. 
I had side control. Or actually, I, I had back exposure from the side control. I was trying to like chair sit this guy, even though I didn't know how to chair sit back then. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, for all you white belts out there, this is why people don't like if you're, you know, if people call you spazzy or whatever, try to slow your game down. I was right behind him. And then without even thinking, he basically just spun as hard as he could into me and his elbow smoked me in the nose. And then blood was running down my gi, and I ran to the washroom, and my my nose was completely put off to the oh, other man. side. So, and oddly <laughs> enough, I was actually supposed to go to a doctor that day, and I was like, okay, well, I need to go to my doctor like right after this. So, do I go? Do I go there, and then he's gonna set my nose, and it's gonna hurt, or should I just do it now? So I said, you know, screw it. So I just put one thumb against the side of my nose, oh, and no. completely pushed it to the other side. <laughs> it felt it felt kind of like a beanbag beanbag stress ball getting shifted it was really strange but uh yeah you know things like that that's why that's why being spazzy is is uh when you're new in jujitsu and you're new to a training environment a lot of people are going to judge you on on certain things they're going to judge you on hygiene uh they're going to judge you on you know are you outgoing and they're going to judge you on your game being spazzy or Mm -hmm. controlled and usually the beginners that display controlled even though they might might lack knowledge and lack lack certain awarenesses uh if you're controlled and you move with thought and cerebral uh and have a cerebral approach then you're probably going to garner more respect than if you come in and and you're just you know (laughs) your aces are wild and you're just friggin trying to trying to have showtime in there and light people up you have no idea what you're doing so yeah you know that's why I think it's so important to start to start training jujitsu from a conceptual point of view, as opposed to an athletic point of view, and 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 uh, really trying to implement you know your strength and your and your speed over somebody who you know could really take it to you if they wanted to. Yeah, the the mindset required to learn is different from the mindset required to to uh, to compete, and you need to know when it's the right time to use which mindset. That's something that. Is it takes a while to get used to. I know that when you're training for the first few times, especially at a white belt level, it's scary and it's really hard to do anything but go into survival mode. But ultimately, that's the kind of thing that more senior belts are going to judge you on. Now, as someone who's more senior, one thing that I I would suggest everyone remember is that I know there's no strikes in jujitsu and you know there's no strikes (laughs) in jujitsu, but that doesn't mean the new guy who just showed up that is rolling for the first time knows there's no strikes in (laughs) jujitsu. I had a situation one time where I was sparring with a guy, I think it was like his first class and the guy was massive. I mean, he was like a former bodybuilder. He was like 300 something pounds and I, you know, I'm like a buck, you know, like a buck 60 at most. And I, I just grab onto this guy. I'm in guard. I put him in a cross choke and not even thinking about it at all. Didn't occur to me, this guy's probably never been choked in his life. Um, and there's a natural reaction to getting choked, and that is to freak the F out, <laughs> which this guy did. He started flailing all over the place, and he just smoked me right in the face with his elbow, busted my face right open. And of course, he was very apologetic. He didn't do it on purpose, but he panicked, right? This was a completely new experience for him, and he was scared. Um, so no no harm, no foul. Uh, but I had a super important business meeting the next day, and I didn't want to walk into this thing with a bunch of people looking like a total a-hole with my face all busted it up. So I remember I, my wife was out of town on a business meeting and I had to call her up and I was like, honey, 
I'm going to open up your makeup drawer and I need you to explain to me how to fix this. <laughs> so as a result, I'm actually pretty decent at applying concealer if I need to now. Uh, but that, that's uh, anyway, that long story short, my the moral of the story is I know you don't always do strikes in jujitsu, but make sure you're protecting your face. <laughs> you know, make sure you're protecting yourself just because your opponent isn't going to strike you under the rule set. That doesn't mean that someone else isn't going to. And if a move is technically sound, it should be a move where you can't actually get hurt. <laughs> so. I mean, those are really good points. It's it's funny how, uh, you know, we're, we got over a decade experience, each of us, but um, someone that comes into a gym new might not know what they're expecting. And, and yeah. like you said, they just react, right? So, and we've all been that white belt who got choked for the first time and how horrible it felt. And yeah, sometimes maybe it, it is important to explain to people, you know, this isn't a real fight. Like, you know, don't don't freak out if someone's trying to choke you. But I've heard that story happen multiple times just because the, the human reaction is yeah. to go it's into a natural survival reaction. mode. It's a natural yeah. reaction. You can't really and blame him. <laughs> no, I, I, didn't, I didn't blame him at all. It was my fault for not understanding that that would happen. Um because even if I tell you, hey, this is, you know, this is a simulated fight. This is what a carotid restraint is. Even if I walk you through all of that, the first time I put you in a choke, if you've never felt that before, it's going to stimulate a biological response, right? Yeah. It, if you think about it, it's actually really weird that we've all been training enough that we're comfortable with people choking off the yep. blood to our brains, right? That's really strange. Yeah. It takes Some of us like it. <laughs> <laughs> it takes people a long time to kind of learn to get comfortable with that. So... Something to bear in mind is, you know, when it comes to avoiding injuries, a big part of that is understanding what kind of natural responses, especially untrained people, are going to throw your way. Um, also, one other thing I would suggest, don't ever get into like a toehold fight. Like, seriously, <laughs> I, you know, if you're ever in the situation where you've got one guy in a toehold and he's got you in a toehold or if it's a heel hook or something like in practice, that's probably a bad idea. I've had that go very sideways on me. Yeah, I feel, I feel like if, if you and your partner are extremely knowledgeable in, in uh, breaking mechanics, you tend to know where, when and where you're caught. Um, but there's a large majority that doesn't understand the sensitivity involved with leg locks from the waist down. So like I tell my guys, you know, if you, if you get injured, that's your fault. If you injure your partner, that's your fault. Basically just take ownership over everyone getting injured. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we've, have we discussed extreme ownership? Yeah, we talked previous? about extreme ownership yeah. in an earlier episode, basically. And, and this is a good mentality to have too when you're talking about things like setbacks. Talking about know? anything really. Yeah. If, if you want successful. Wanna, exactly. If you have a setback, or a problem in life, if you want to fix it, the first thing you need to do is take ownership of it. You can't fix a problem if you don't think you're the person who has the power to fix it. So regardless of who caused it or what happened, yeah. you don't want a victim mindset. You want to take ownership of that problem. Even if it wasn't ultimately your responsibility or your fault, make it your responsibility. Yeah, even even if you, well, especially if you're a higher rank and you injure someone who's a lower rank, generally you will be looked at as the person who should have shown more maturity and more control mm -hmm. uh but but really you know you should be taking uh taking ownership for your own injuries and for those of your training partners if 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 you cause them so uh getting into toehold battles you know i t i tend to even though sometimes they can be cringeworthy i i don't uh i don't discourage them necessarily i just i just want people to look out for each other and and know mm -hmm. that you know it's 
it's it's it's mechanical based. It's not. It shouldn't be a gunfight where one person's going to win, the other person's going to break their leg. Right? It's uh, you're responsible for your partner, and if you feel like you're caught, you should tap, and you should tap early. Mm-hmm. Um, in a competition, obviously, there's people out there that will let things pop, and I totally understand that. People want to win, um, and some people are gifted physically. They have more flexible joints than others, so that's up to their, to their discretion. But in the practice room, um, me as an instructor, as a training partner, especially as a businessman, I really can't have injuries happening all the time, especially when we're, we uh, we train in leg locks so much. So uh, safety and technique are the two main the two main things that I try and push upon my students and the third thing is going to be usually fun and learning, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I, that, that's sort of the hierarchy of things important in importance that I have in my classes, mm-hmm. safety and, you know, fun can come last as far as I'm concerned. That's <laughs> it funny. It shouldn't be fun. <laughs> that's funny because for me as a, as a casual, I mean, for me, fun is first. That's, that to me is the main thing I'm looking to get out of it, but it's, it's an important example of how you've got to know your goals, right? You have to know why you're training and that's a, I think a big part of training for the long term, like right, like really knowing why you're here and what you're looking to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, we should also discuss because uh, the episode is injuries and setbacks. So so not all setbacks are going to be related to injuries that you might suffer. You know, setbacks can include things as you know job opportunities or you know heaven forbid spouses or girlfriends or children, wives or, or children uh, are or the big ones, husbands maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, children. You know. Um, the blue belt blues, right? Some people get a promotion and then they just hang yeah. it up. They get their blue belt and then they yeah. quit. We all know a few of them, right? So. I, well, I can say, man, I don't know about you, but for me, nothing is more demoralizing than the, having the blue belt. Because when you're when you're a white belt, it's like you're a child, right? Like everything is new and exciting and every day you learn something new and you're meeting all of these cool new people and, you know, it's like you feel like you're a badass because it's the first time you've done a martial art and, you know, but then you get the blue belt. And, and when you're a white belt, getting the blue belt seems like this insurmountably hard goal, <laughs> which is funny, actually, looking back at it now. It's such a, you know, it's totally not. But when you're a white belt, you look at these blue belts like they're like demigods. But once you get the blue belt, then a few things happen. Number one, um, a lot of the people that you came up with, they they all leave. And then you're, you might be the last man standing, right? Number two, you look forward and you realize that that journey to white belt, you know, that might have taken you, depending on your club, you know, like probably two years or less. Um, and they, But then you look forward and you realize, man, for this blue belt, I'm probably going to be wearing this thing twice as long as the white belt. And then I got like three other belts after that. Yeah. And then you realize, you know, okay, I've, I've taken like the first step here, but I'm basically walking across a continent. Like this is a long journey and that can be demoralizing. And oh, then, absolutely. And then the other thing is when you're a blue belt, suddenly now the purple belts and the brown belts and the black belts are going to start paying attention to you. And so no longer are you just sparring with these junior guys who are new like you now you're getting your ass kicked on the regular and the for me the the blue belt you know they it's I, i've heard it referred to as like the quitter belt but really it's kind of like it's that that belt is a war of attrition right it is really hard to get past the blue belt that for me was harder than and almost any other belt because at that point like that's when the world kind of opens up to you and you realize how long this is going to be and it, there, there's kind of a degree of depression there and i think that's a reason why a lot of people they get their blue belt and then they're like i'm, I'm done that's all i want 
want I can't go I'm not going to go further than this yeah absolutely and you're definitely right about the uh, upper ranks finally showing you a bit more respect and noticing you and and uh, well like, I wouldn't say respect it's more more wrist locks than respect honestly <laughs> <laughs> well when I say respect I mean I guess they acknowledge I mean, your existence yeah, attention right <laughs> uh, you know usually by the time you get your blue belt you can you can demonstrate some skill so you will get guys of higher ranks sort of rolling with you more now that you've been a little bit tailored to uh, your training environment but it's definitely I, I know what you mean you realize like how far of a journey it really is um, and I, I found by the time that I reached purple belt I or I was almost done my purple belt I realized how little belts actually mean and yeah, how yeah. time on the mat and not giving up actually means more um, and mm-hmm. when we're talking about setbacks you know and uh I've had students that, you know, had to move and there's not not much you can do about that. When a student has to move, you know, I just hope that they continue their journey somewhere else and they make that a priority. But uh, things like having kids or, you know... uh, Something, having kids is, is is a beautiful reason to miss BJJ, even though you should still make jiu-jitsu a, a priority in your life. But having a girlfriend maybe that doesn't understand, um, you know, that you want to, tra- want to train and you want to make jiu-jitsu a big part of your life, that's the biggest heartbreaker for me because that mm-hmm. is, uh, at least if you have kids, that's, you know, those are... Those are obligations that you really truly are obligated to. If you have a, uh, someone in your life that doesn't understand your training desires and, and, uh, the need that you have to train jujitsu, I think that's really unfortunate. And it's, uh, they might not be even the person that, uh, you want to be with, you know, the last thing you want is to have a partner that you resent because they're, uh, stopping you from doing something that you love. Yeah. I think like anything in life with jujitsu, it's a big amount of your time over a long time that you're going to have to spend doing this and you have to have a really honest conversation with yourself about what this means to you and where it fits in terms of priority and you need to understand that if it's not top priority for you if it's not even like top five or top ten that is totally okay no one can tell you what your priorities should be in life but you should make that decision for yourself and you should enforce that decision. And it's totally fine if something happens that forces you to to change track. But if jujitsu does remain a priority for you, eventually you should try to find a way to get back on track. I mean, we've all taken breaks at some point, especially like I took a year and a half off when I had my daughter. Uh, We've all, we've all done it where we've taken time off. But if jujitsu really is a priority, then you should find a way back. It's very easy to give up on things because changing your routine is hard, right? Jujitsu is intimidating. Uh, You know, we all remember that when we started, it's super intimidating. And if you, You've been gone for a while and then you it gets very intimidating again it's actually I think actually it's harder to come back from a long absence than it is to show up for the first time because when you show up for the first time yeah it's intimidating but no one has beginner's mind yeah but you have beginner's mind but also no one has any expectations of you whereas when you come back after like a you know if you've been gone for a while (laughs) then you not only are you is it a new scary scenario but you also have to deal with people chastising you because you were gone for so long yeah you you used to be good hey you used to beat the crap (laughs) out Yeah. Now, now I can take it to you. Right? Exactly. You always have guys measuring themselves against what you used to be. Yeah, and that that's where beginner's mind comes into play, right? I mean, it, when whenever you have a situation where you have to take time off, it's almost like hitting the reset button, and you know your your skill level is going to hit the reset button for sure. You have to make sure your brain also hits the reset button because if you come in with ego, I mean, the, your ego is probably going to prevent you from coming in in the first place. Honestly, although I, I I think you're much better now than when you left. Thank you. 
Uh, mostly because you stopped going for Ezekiel's and you practice alignment now. Ezekiel's are the ultimate alignment. <laughs> I mean, what, what could be more aligned than like popping the guy's head off with your sleeve? That is the ultimate submission. Fun story. One time I was training with Steve and... Uh, I think I'm, I've, I've always been more of the athletic one. Like, I've, I grew up playing a lot more sports than Steve, but... Um, well, I won't dispute it. I'm a computer nerd, let's, man. Let's just say Steve had a reputation for going for chokes from <laughs> not good positions. I can remember one time I was I was rolling with him, and you know, we're always keeping a light playing around. I mounted him, and then he put a... Uh, I think it was a cross choke on me, or some kind of Ezekiel. And, and anyways, I thought, oh, I'm going to armbar him right now. Like, this is... Uh, you know, I got him and I was trying so hard to posture up. I'm like, I can't posture up right now. I'm stuck here. <laughs> and, uh, and two seconds later, I had to tap out while I had you mounted. Um, and, and a bunch of people saw and it was really embarrassing for me. No, nothing never is more, forget that. Nothing is more embarrassing than being <laughs> submitted by an inferior po- opponent from an inferior position. Yeah. I remember, I, I think a lot of our listeners probably actually know exactly who I'm talking about, but I was sparring with a, a really good MMA fighter one time who's a lot bigger than me and he mounted me and I Ezekieled him from bottom out and he looked me straight in the eyes and said, I'm not going to tap. And then he passed out. <laughs> 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 That's essentially what happened to me, except I have way too much pride to pass out right in front of you. And because I'm afraid that I'm going to piss myself. Yeah. It's one of my biggest fears that I'm going to soil myself in a competition. It's so a, I just always tap. It's a self-defense mechanism. It's like a skunk, right? I mean, or, it's a, just, or an octopus. Yeah. I, hey, <laughs> I, I think we've talked about this earlier. Like there is no rule saying that you cannot fart in your opponent's face to get out. You know, I've, I've had that happen before and it is, it is devastating. <laughs> Um, <laughs> anyway, back, back on topic. So I, I think that, yeah, when you're, when you've been gone for a long time, um, you've got to kind of learn to put your ego on the shelf and you've got to understand that your ego is going to make it hard for you to come back. Uh, that's actually where I think I see a lot of people who, uh, probably w- should come back, probably wanted to come back, but just couldn't bring themselves to come back because they've been gone for a while for whatever reason. And just they knew that it was going to be embarrassing to come back because they'd been gone for so long. They were going to get, you know, they're going to get ragged on. They were probably going to get beat up by everyone because they were rusty. Um, that is kind of a tragedy when, you know, people take they take time off, but then they're afraid to come back. So really, if you do ever find yourself in a situation where life happens, whether it be work, family, some other situation, and you have to take time off, Understand that there's no shame in that. It happens to everybody. But also understand that it, it's going to be scary to come back and you've got to conquer that fear, right? And you'll be stronger for that if you can conquer that fear. Yeah. And it's it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? Like yeah. Jiu-jitsu, I remember when I was a white belt and a blue belt, I was so excited to get to the next class, get to the next stripe, learn the next move, you know, beat, beat that training partner that I had never beaten before. And the, you know, the better you get, the, the more experience you gain, you realize like, oh yeah, like I'm going to have to do this for a long time. If, if, mm-hmm. if I, if I want to do this for, for life, right. My, my goal was always to do it for life. And we're probably going to talk about longevity at another time. Um, but, but I realized, you know, Hey, I, I actually have to slow it down a little bit because I'm, I can't just let my body deteriorate. If I keep training this hard or I keep doing wild stuff, then uh, I'm going to be prone for injury. So you realize that it, it really is a marathon and that it should be looked at in terms of longevity, not just, you know, I got to get as good as, fa- as fast as I can. I get as good as I can in this amount of time. You know, it, it's all about balance and it's all about listening to your body and training smart and training safe rather than necessarily training as hard as you can. I have students that, uh, 
you know, they get injured and they, and they always showing up. And then I have other students, um, that if they get injured, I won't see them for a month or two mm-hmm. months. I used to be at the lower level when, when I first started, if I got injured, I, I couldn't even go to the gym because mm-hmm. I would, I would want to train so bad. So I would end up just not going to the gym for a month, you know, and, and then I'd come back and everything would be good. Um, now I'm going through this injury and I've gone through my share of injuries in the last year where I've had to take, you know, a month off or a few weeks off or a week off. And because running a gym is my job now, I'm basically forced to go to the gym and, um, you, you adapt in different ways. Like, uh, you, you can watch more, you can be more present and you can do more. Um, you can, you're basically watching from a bird's eye view. You're watching people rolling and you're asking yourself you know, second by second, you're asking yourself, what decisions would I make if I was in this situation? Um, it's a, it's a, it's a really important part of our training and exercising our mind that we don't really think about. And that's, and that's constantly, uh, watching, right. And, and sometimes when we're training and we're rolling 10 rounds and, and you're just, you know, the rounds go by so fast and before you know what practice is over, you don't really get a chance to watch and sort of see things from a a perspective, uh, from, a uh, like an objective standpoint, a third party standpoint. Yeah. From a spectator point of view, you want, and, and being injured sometimes gives you that, that vision where you can now look at things in a way that you wouldn't before. You can, you can look at jujitsu in different ways. And, uh, for me, I mean, I'm noticing that it's really helping me as a coach because I can, I can give that feedback to guys that I maybe, maybe I wouldn't have time to, if I was rolling, um, focusing on my own training in that moment, I might not be able to be such a good coach to to certain people. So, you know, you got to look at positives and and uh, if an injury is just a negative to you, it's one big negative, you're probably going to be in for a miserable uh, recovery and and a miserable reintegration back to jiu-jitsu. Yeah, we we talked about this prior where when you're with it, when you are the most senior guy in the room, the best thing that you can do to make yourself better is to make your training partners better because if you raise the level in the room, that will ultimately make you better. Now, while you are physically injured, you might not be able to train physically the way that you used to, but you can definitely use that opportunity to raise the level of the room. And if you can do that, then when you are ready to return, those people are going to help you grow a lot faster than you would have otherwise. Another thing that you can do too, I mean, you you talked about the importance of using your mind if your your body is not available, um, you know, technique visualization or meditative drilling or a- any type of visualization or thought activity as well. You can can train quite effectively using those as as alternatives. I mean, there's there's no substitute to actually lo- actually training live, but stopping to think things through and to really get comfortable with ideas and and maybe really kind of visualize how a, you know how a new guard would work or something that you're not really acquainted with that can actually be surprisingly effective when you're not able to physically train. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, in, on the physical aspect, things that I would never do before, like I, I never used to do strength and conditioning. I never, uh, I would never focus on like my, you know, give the, my, my body the proper attention I, that I would need to, to keep it aligned to, to, uh, to do prehab and things like that. But now it's, it's really in my mind that I have to keep my body, uh, at a, at a state that is going to give me longevity mm-hmm. and going to let me train the way I want. So I'm, I'm really trying to, you know, make the prehab happen. I'm trying to make the, the physio happen. And, um, and all the things that I never, I kind of just would do jujitsu instead of now they're, they're uh, a real goal moving forward for me. And I think that 
as we get older, we, we basically don't have a choice, if we're, especially if we're going to be serious about jujitsu. We have to really look at our body as a vehicle mm-hmm. um, and, and treat the vehicle properly. And that involves, you know, feeding it properly and, and uh, doing the proper maintenance and whatnot. Does that include oil checking? Oh yeah, <laughs> I saw a funny. I saw a funny. Po- I saw a really funny meme today. It was a Danaher thing, and uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> it was on BJJ Fanatics, and someone had photoshopped him in an Ashigarami, and it looked like he was oil checking a dude. And he said, uh, "Enter the digestive system." <laughs> it, was, it was really brilliant. <laughs> I, I explained to my my coworkers who don't grapple that this is a thing that we think about quite a lot, and they've never really looked at me. This same sense so anyway um good conversation just to wrap up some of the highlights of what we talked today and in terms of how all of this ties into mental models we talked about training handicaps so when you know when one of your your limbs is not working as it normally would you can handicap your game and focus on other areas that you normally wouldn't over the long term this can benefit you because while you're injured you're learning new techniques and strategies that you might not have previously looked into we talked about the growth mindset as opposed to the fixed mindset, which is important when you're dealing with injuries because from a fixed mindset, you feel like you've lost something. But from a growth mindset, you look at this as an opportunity to expand and adapt in different areas. We talked about extreme ownership, meaning taking ownership of everything that happens in your life, whether it was technically your fault your fault or not, because you cannot fix things and improve things unless you take responsibility for them. And this will just make you successful in life if yeah. you take ownership for everything. And your peers and your employers are going to respect you far more. So, yeah, interestingly, as we talk about a lot of this stuff, a lot a lot of this is mental. And these principles are really universal. You know, ex- extreme ownership is actually cited from Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. And they were not, a, despite the fact that they trained jiu-jitsu, they were not talking about jiu-jitsu when they cited these. You know, they were talking about experience from the military that they've applied to the business world. So a lot a lot of these principles are pretty universal. We talked about beginner's mind, meaning that from any scenario you want, regardless of your level of experience, you want to approach things with the mindset of a humble beginner and be willing to learn and be ready to be humbled, especially important if you're returning after a long layoff. We talked about consistency, how um, you know continuous long-term performance and just showing up is far more important than, you know, bursts of brilliance. This is a critical over the long term because injuries and setbacks are inevitable and that consistency is the thing that separates black belts and long-term grapplers from everyone else. And we talked about um, technique visualization or meditative drilling, meaning, you know, if your body is not able to train, that does not mean your mind cannot train. That's always an alternative if you're physically injured. Um, Matt, a question that came up that Mm. I thought would be good to talk about. So we were asked to talk about the approach that a grappler should take regarding the different grappler arts. So particularly what they were talking about is, you know, there's a whole bunch of different grappling arts. There's judo, BJJ, wrestling, sambo, many, many Mm -hmm. others. Uh, We've talked in the past um, about, you know, the BJJ specific approach to grappling, uh, in particular how some things like takedowns are not really incentivized in BJJ. You know, Mm -hmm. they're obviously incredibly powerful and important, but due to this rule set that we operate under, they're kind of just disregarded in Mm jujitsu. So we were asked to talk about, you know, what our thoughts are on a, like a universal grappler approach. What do we think is, is the best way to move forward when you've got all of these different arts that have different strategies for grappling? Yeah. I mean, really it comes down to uh, rule set 
and you know the environment that you're in so if you're if you're a competitor then the rule set is going to dictate what kind of a grappler you are generally uh for for me you know, I, I do know some takedowns. I know judo. I know how to wrestle, but I rarely use it because I know uh, of takedowns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I know them, but uh, it's not a big part of my competition game. Mainly because uh, I want to reduce risk of injury. I'm more confident in my guard, and I feel like my chances are winning. Uh, my chances of winning are better if I pull guard. So most of the time, if you fight me, probably going to pull guard on you. But um, definitely, that doesn't mean that I discourage people from learning takedowns. In fact, I definitely encourage that you you uh, at least have a few in your back pocket in in different directions. Right, a forward throw, a backward throw. You know, you know how to you know how to do a double leg. You know how to do a single like these these basic things because um in my club you know you we we kind of try to foster a complete grappling style even though my style you know i tend to pull guard and i like leg locks and i like to uh you know play open guard and half guard i have my own specific game i want students to be able to come in and take if they take a liking to some a particular style whether it's a judo style or or a leg locking style i want them to be able to to become the grappler that they want to be and i want them to just have all the tools available to them so uh I think you need to know at least a few different takedowns, but you know, at the end of the day, you're going to gravitate towards the game that you find is going to be most successful for you. And if longevity is a goal for you, probably the most consistently successful for you and the safest. Um, and that's why I tend to be more reliant in my guard and put more time into my guard than on my top game. Yeah. You, from, from my perspective, I think that, you never want to turn down knowledge. You know, you you always want to be receptive to new ideas and actively look for new ideas. And that means that you should at least, as you said, Matt, you know, spend some cursory time exploring takedowns, even if that's not your bag. And I would say also at the bare minimum, familiarize yourself with what these other arts offer because they, you know, they do have different goals. And, but that said, there, there could be things there that are worth knowing. Mm -hmm. There's a concept called connective thinking, which basically says that, a lot of the time, the big breakthroughs that happen are not because someone created a totally new, innovative thought that no one had ever had before, but because people took two things that never connected and they found a way to tie them together. Um, and that's really what jujitsu is, if you think about it. It because, is, yeah. Because jujitsu takes all, like, you know, you're, you're asking about other grappling arts Jiu-jitsu is just judo in slightly changed, right? It, That's all it is. Yeah, well, I just look at Brazilian jiu-jitsu as uh, grappling from all different arts that works. Mm -hmm. And there, yes, there is sort of a, un not quite unified, but there's a general unified rule set. You know, you can pull guard and you're fighting to submission and whatnot. Um, but, but there's a general overall rule set. And it takes, you know, if something's effective from another martial art, jiu-jitsu will eventually absorb it. Mm -hmm. It will become part of jiu-jitsu. Uh, that's why you see, you know, wrestling, you see judo, uh, you know, you see leg locks. Um, a, a question that I commonly get asked is, you know, what do you think of catch wrestling? Mm -hmm. And uh, my honest opinion is that I've seen certain things and been caught with certain things that do work. But I'm skeptical about it still because it's not always uh, conceptually sound. It doesn't always follow the posture structure base, frames, levers, wedges concepts. Uh, and you don't see it consistently work at a high level. 
Yeah, so, yeah. So things like slicers, you know, even though I will tap to a slicer, you don't see slicers happen at a high level. Certain different catch moves that are, you know, strength related, you you know, sometimes you think, oh, if I got, that wouldn't work on me. But then you, you know, you'll see uh, Josh Barnett tap yeah. Dean Lister out with a rib crank or a rib crush or whatever. So um, conceptually, I my personal opinion is that catch wrestling is probably not as uh technically sound as jujitsu i know i might be pissing some people off there but you can't deny the that it does work sometimes and you can't deny that it's dangerous and needs to be respected and, and besides catch wrestling i mean the best thing about catch wrestling is that it is the underwear very, oh, well that too I, you know, I, I, I was gonna say it is very closely related to pro wrestling which is of course the ultimate grappling <laughs> <laughs> i mean who, who was it bruce lee who i could be quoting that wrong bruce i know lee, exactly he said yeah. you know take whatever works or yeah, they, use they, whatever works discard what doesn't yeah so, so I, butchering I that quote the quote Sorry. was something like um what was it absorb what is useful discard what is not add what is uniquely your own it was something like that and it was i think probably bruce lee who said i think it's a brilliant quote right yeah. and i i think another thing it works too, for everything yeah 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 it does uh, and i think another thing that matters a lot is understanding what your goals are you know if your goal is to be a competitive high-level jiu-jitsu grappler, then yeah, you got to make sure that what you do works within the rules. Yeah. Um, but that said, you know, if if your goal is self-defense, then the situation changes quite a bit. If your goal yeah. is just to have fun in the gym, then your situation changes yeah. quite a bit. So you have to ask yourself first, what do you want out of this? I mean, for me, for example, mm-hmm. I, I just train for fun. Um, but that said, I want to be, I want to know how to defend myself. So for me, when I am looking at a new technique or I'm looking at a new strategy, I have to ask myself, is this realistic for self-defense? Mm-hmm. Is this safe for me to do? Or does it like expose myself to some degree of injury? Mm-hmm. And does it work against opponents of basically all body types? Those are my big factors. Now, that may not be the same if you're a gi grappler who only competes in tournaments against people they're the same weight class, right? It's going to be very dependent on what yeah. your goals are. And the first thing to, that you have to know is what are your goals? And that's going to kind of dictate to you what the, how you would answer a question like this about a universal grappling approach. Yeah, if you if you only do the gi, you probably don't need to learn leg locks or heel hooks, which I find is really disappointing. Um, but I, you... I do think, though, back to connective thinking, you absolutely should because someone else is going to innovate there and eventually they're going to find a way to get you <laughs> for sure or if ibjjf just makes it legal for you yeah. to do heel hooks in the gi for some reason right mm-hmm. or or if you're a judoka you really don't need to spend a lot of emphasis on newaza because the rules mm-hmm. you know if you get it to, if you can get upon then you win so again your goals will change um when when i'm thinking about if, if i see something cool in like a catch wrestling video which you know unfortunately doesn't happen too often where i'm like okay that's something that i'll actually absorb into my game basically i ask myself i love i love what you said about will this work on people of of most body types and mm-hmm. uh i just ask myself is it technically sound it, do i have posture structure base do i deny my opponent of posture structure base mm-hmm. where's the lever where you know what what mechanisms am i using to immobilize his body how it, i basically just use the alignment concepts and uh, reverse engineer it and I, I use it as a filter to to ask myself is this legit or not and if if there's you know if i'm doing a, a move that totally sacrifices my own base 
boom, a red flag goes up in my head and I'm like, well, I'm sacrificing my base. So technically this might not be the most high percentage move. It, yeah. it might work on some guys. I could totally see. It's me a dice cast. roll. Yeah. But, but at, a, at the highest level, can I rely upon this? If the chances are that I can't rely upon a high level, probably not going to invest a lot of time into perfecting that technique. So, yeah, yeah. you know, like, like we've, you know, if you listen to us for a while now, you know that alignment and concepts are kind of what dictates what goes into my game. Yeah. For me, I, I kind of take it and I, I add a few more restrictions as well. Um, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking for techniques, I, I don't really care exactly what art it came from, but I, you know, I'm okay with techniques that, that leverage the gi, although I prefer not to use techniques that are like so dependent on the gi that they would never work in a real fight. Like I, I, you know, I will grab the collar and the lapel and I will use that, but things like spider guard are just not really for me. Uh, first of all, because I find it incredibly hard to apply against larger guys, but also because it's just not really applicable for self defense um uh, yeah, another thing that i've kind of added Boo, is, yeah I it's know. wrong <laughs> another thing that i've kind of added is and again this is not a, a right or wrong thing this is just my personal preference um knowing that i i am usually giving up a lot of size i i try to really follow onto the principle of isolating a single target uh, we've talked about this before which is that you know if you can apply maximal pressure onto a single lever a lot of the time that's going to be stronger than trying to do it on two levers at once. So the kind of the textbook example of this is like, if I try to triangle you, I have to contend with your head and your arm. And against a big guy, that's really hard to do. Whereas if I armbar or omoplata you, I'm only dealing with one lever. And I find as a smaller guy, I can put a lot more pressure on a single limb than I can if that pressure is split across two. Uh, that is far from a universal rule, and that is not something that um, everyone agrees with. I mean, a lot of people are, are content to do triangles. But for me, I, I understand that there is kind of a size threshold with triangles where at a certain point, it's just hard for a smaller person to apply, you know, enough control uh, to, to get against someone's arm and their head to be able to control them from a triangle. Like there's, there's a certain point where at some point that strategy just doesn't become effective anymore. Yeah. So for different body types, you know, you, you prepare yourself, you have other tools yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to implement against someone where they're, you know, it's not, you're not the same size. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's kind of like, it ties back to self-defense and safety. Right, I, I understand that against bigger body types, I have to maybe pull out different things from the toolbox than things I would do against someone my own size. Well, cool. fantastic chat. Uh, just a side note, guys. Like I am going through this um, this recovery right now, and uh, I, I'm hoping for a speedy recovery. But if any of you guys are going through injuries right now, and you you know you want to share your story, or you have a question for us, or you know you have something interesting to say, that's whatever BJJ or injury related, we'd love to hear from you guys. Please keep the comments and questions coming because it does uh, add value to the show. And uh, thank you for listening. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And, and tying on to that, in terms of the feedback that we receive, a significant amount of the amount of the questions that we get center around things like how do you play this game for the long term or how do you deal with injuries or, or recovery? So this is something that has, has definitely attracted people's attention. If you do have a story you want to share or any questions uh, or anything particular that you want to add, please do feel free to share it. We'd love to discuss it in future episodes. So thanks again. And we really appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. Bye-bye for now.